You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. The most interesting man in the world, because everything he does, he immerses himself completely. I remember when he wrote his article about outsourcing everything in his life. He even outsourced arguing with his wife to an outsourcing firm in India. Whenever they started arguing, he'd call up the outsourcing firm and let them argue with his wife. He's written The Know-It-All, where he read the Encyclopedia Britannica from A to Z. He wrote The Year of Living Biblically, where he lived a biblical life for an entire year and hilarity ensued. He wrote Drop Dead Healthy, where he tried to live a healthy life for a year. He had the world's largest family reunion and on and on and on. I, I love this guy's style. AJ Jacobs has been a good friend. And his book coming out in April is called The Puzzler. You'll hear a little about that today, more about that in a few months. And we also talk about a recent conference he went to of super smart people who were debating how the world could end. AJ Jacobs once again back on the podcast. AJ, I'm so excited to have you here. 
I am so excited to be here. I was a hermit for like a year working on a book, and I have emerged. From you were my cave. a hermit. You literally not only didn't return my calls, you didn't return <laughs> like your wife called me looking for you. You didn't return anyone's phone calls. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I I just saw her again after a year, and she looks good. She looks good. Like much of that time when you're writing, is it because you're not writing and so you can't do anything in life until you write again? So because like you get a kind of writer's block or is it just you're just head down, working nonstop, uh, finishing the book? Well, my projects, uh, as you know, like I go all in. They are fully immersive. So it's like, you know, an 18-hour-a-day job. Uh, and this one is about puzzles, as you know. So I was... It's such a huge topic. I could spend 10 years doing it, but I just, you know, I was able to cut it down to two years. But I basically, all I did was was hang out with weird, uh, delightful, eccentric puzzle people, some of the smartest people in the world, and just did puzzles and tried to, you know, hear their crazy stories. I, I visited the CIA uh, to see one of the great unsolved puzzles in Wait, the why, world. Wait, why did the CIA have one of the great unsolved puzzles? Well, they have, it's called Kryptos. Have you ever heard of Kryptos? No. Uh, it's this sculpture that was created 30 years ago by this uh, this eccentric sculptor. Uh, and he, he created it for the CIA. It's in the middle of their headquarters. And it's got 2,000 letters on it, like characters. Uh, and they, they are a secret code. And no one has been able to fully solve the code even the CIA, which makes me a little nervous, to be honest. So wait, who, uh, who made this for them? It was a sculptor. He teamed up with an ex-CIA cryptographer. But it's this incredibly, it's one of the great unsolved puzzles of the world. And uh, I was able to get access to the CIA headquarters. They let me in. I didn't sneak in. that, <laughs> But uh, so I got to see it up close. I, I don't want to spoil the ending, but I did not solve it. it you know, there are thousands of people obsessively working on solving this code for the last 30 years. It's like the Zodiac Killer code. That's do, another famous one. How do they know it's solvable? Well, that's a debate. Uh, they have solved three of the four codes. So there are there are four messages. And one of the messages is like uh, some... Uh, it basically says there's a treasure buried somewhere, possibly on the CIA grounds. Uh, and then another is uh, like a, a mysterious poem about shadows and light. Uh, but there are some people who say this guy is just messing with us. Like he's a troll that is like they're never going to solve it. So, okay. So your book is going to be, it's coming out in April. So we're going to, we're not going to talk about the book so much today. We're going to talk about it in April, but the book is awesome. called The Puzzler, One Man's Quest to Solve the Most Baffling Puzzles Ever from Crosswords to Jigsaws to the Meaning of Life. I also appreciate that you have a, a chapter on chess puzzles. The whole Love art chess of puzzles. chess composing is a, a field unto itself. Like even, you know, people who never even play the game get obsessed with composing chess puzzles. Vladimir Nabokov, the famous author of Lolita, uh, was a, a master chess composer. You mentioned a mutual friend of ours who does chess puzzles, Cyrus Lakdawalla. I don't know Lakdawalla, how yeah. awesome man. And and another, he's more of a friend of yours than mine, but I know him a little, is Gary Kasparov came over and uh He's, and he's an okay chess player. He's I've heard of him. 
<laughs> He's not bad. Yeah, it was extraordinary. I mean, he, um, well, he was actually, he insulted my chess board. Uh, that was the first opening move. He said you had a cheap chess board. Yeah, he said, what is this cheap chess? Because it was, you know, it had plastic and uh but then he's like, no, I grew up in Soviet Union. I'm used to cheap chess boards, so it's okay. All so, right. Yeah, he gave me an out. That. Yeah, he gave me an out. Now, um, your, your CIA puzzle reminds me, have you ever heard of the Sakata Reddit puzzle? Oh, yeah, yeah. I looked into that. I didn't do a chapter on it, um, but I love that. That's another one, yeah. I wonder if there's like another book here, like mysterious, huge unsolved puzzles. And not just any unsolved puzzle. Like these are unsolved puzzles that millions of people have tried to solve. And it's also related to, you know, if you think about it, all of mathematics is like giant unsolved puzzles. Like, is there a way to factor prime numbers quickly, for instance, is a giant unsolved puzzle. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And I mean, life, that's part of the book is that life is a, an unsolved puzzle. And there are so many uh so many uh challenges out there but yeah cryptos is a there their lists on the internet of like the top 10 unsolved puzzles and cryptos is always in there the voynich manuscript has taken up like you know mark zuckerberg has taken yeah. up millions of hours of our of our lives but i think the voynich manuscript has taken up about as many because what's the voynich manuscript it's this mysterious manuscript from the Middle Ages filled with all these mysterious symbols. And people have been puzzling over it for centuries and, you know, using quantum computers, using everything they can to throw at it. And no one has been able to crack it. Every, every like three months, there'll be an article, I solved the Voynich manuscript. And then it turns out uh, the guy is full of crap. But uh, yeah, I mean, the... Who doesn't love like it's so it's so tantalizing this idea that like, you can be the one to finally solve and and sometimes it happens like sometimes that's what's amazing is when you actually have someone who solves a puzzle like the zodiac the zodiac puzzle ciphers were just solved last year one well, of what them. are the zodiac ciphers you you have to figure you've been immersed in like Good puzzle point. culture for the past couple of years what's the zodiac puzzle the Zodiac was a uh, serial killer in the 70s. The Zodiac serial killer, they made a movie about him yeah. a few years ago. And he uh, left a bunch of mysterious coded notes filled, filled with symbols to the cops. He would send all these taunting letters and, and uh, not all of them have been cracked. But just last year, using this new computer program, they cracked one where it was basically like a childish, like, you know, I hope you're looking for me. You can't find me. Ha ha ha. So, uh, yeah, that is another big one that people love to uh, devote their lives to uh, trying to figure out. Why do you think, I mean, okay, wait, I don't, we'll get into all of this when we actually do a podcast about the book, because uh, the book's coming out in April. And but I do want to ask you kind of about some interesting experiences you've had while creating this book. And uh, I also have an idea for you. Mm. You know, when I had Will Schwartz on the podcast, and Will Schwartz, of course, is the famous New York Times crossword puzzle editor, and the New York Times is arguably the most famous crossword puzzle in the world. And he has hundreds of books <laughs> that he's quote unquote written uh, about where he just says has crossword puzzle after crossword puzzle. And he also has Sudoku, he has Ken Ken, and you write about these things in, in your book. You should create your own line of puzzle books now. 
I love that idea. I mean, James, you always, you're such a better businessman than I am. I don't know about that. Yeah, I, you've probably never gone broke. I've gone broke from business. I might go broke again. Who knows? So, yeah, but you're I don't know at, if that makes me good, good or at, bad. You're good at making money and then going broke. You don't just go broke. First right. you make a few million, then you go broke, then you make it again. Uh, and you're always giving me business ideas of how to monetize uh, my books. And I'm always too uh, lazy or scared or... Uh, confused to do it but this time I think I got to take you up on it you're right I'm going to I'm going to launch the puzzler franchise how about I find someone to do the puzzle books for you mm. and just have your name on it and maybe you could write an intro to each one you don't even will shorts doesn't even do an intro to each one mm, so I love that I I will find someone to make the puzzle books for you and you just can self-publish them or, or you can find a publisher, whatever you That's want. That's nice. You just split it 50-50 with this person or company or whatever. All right, I'm in. Well, you know, one of my best known articles was called My Outsourced Life, which I wrote like 15 years ago, where I hired a team of people in India to do everything for me. like Including you know, arguing with your wife. Including arguing with my wife. So I should be an expert in outsourcing and delegating. But ironically, after, you know, even though that article was an awesome experience, I'm just not good at it. Uh, so you're going to, yeah, you're going to teach me or or delegate someone to teach me. Well, the thing to, is, the, the thing is like when, if someone says to you, oh, you should do this. And probably people say that to you all the time. Oh, AJ, you should write a book about blah, blah, blah. You probably get like tense, like, oh no, I have enough things to do. <laughs> now they're giving me more things to do. And when you did the outsourcing article, it was a little bit of a humorous article. Like you literally, when you started arguing with your wife, you would call up this outsourcing firm in India. It's funny. And so oh, maybe yeah. it doesn't, maybe it hasn't occurred to you to relieve this business tension you sometimes have or business anxiety with outsourcing, particularly because outsourcing itself could often be work. Like you have to find someone. But I will take care of that for you. I'm, you can outsource immediately right now to me. All right, done. I will take care of it. You're going to have 100 books within the next two years. Uh, <laughs> and you'll be generating income every single month from every single one of those books. I will do oh, it for you. God bless you. All right, done. It is done. What's the book called? Yeah, the Puzzler, right? Right. Okay, we're so, going to make a brand out of The Puzzler. Oh, you're the best. Thank you. The Puzzlers right, Cross the Puzzles, part one. Cru All right. Puzzler Sudoku. All right. Okay. Let me let me know when they're out. So, uh, and, you know, I'll tell you where to send the checks. And that's great. All right, done. And then, um, <laughs> so moving on, uh, your, your, your story about the CIA puzzle reminds me, I've had quite a few guests on this podcast that have all independently told me this story where like, let's say it'll be like a thriller writer or there's been some other examples like a puzzle type of person, but let's say a, a, this has been told for me like, and, and Jay as well about by four or five guests, they've all, they're all part of some group organized by the government, like in the mid OOs, like 2007, 2008, to come up with scenarios for how the US could be attacked or destroyed or whatever. And so it's, it reminds me a little bit like that there's this group, and again, some of them I've interviewed, but they won't, th th this group's been gathered to sort of solve the puzzle of how the U.S. could be attacked. And I always ask them, of course, well, what did you come up with? But they're not right. allowed to tell me. Yeah. You don't want to give people the ideas. That's, yeah, I've heard of that. I've never been to that. But yeah, I've heard like they get Hollywood producers to like come up with these crazy scenarios of, 
you know, what what action movie, what sci-fi movie could actually happen and how can we prevent it? So, uh, yeah, if if the people who organize that are listening, I want an invite. I'm ready. I've got plenty of ideas, but I won't act on them. Not going to act on them. By the way, you and I earlier were talking about, you know, fiction ideas. This is a fiction idea. Imagine you're in this group of the government's top secret, you know, puzzlers or whatever. And it's, it's made up of thriller writers, Hollywood directors, uh, crossword puzzle masters, chess masters, whatever. And they're getting killed off one by one. Oh, that's and, good. And then uh, because one of them has the, I, I don't know why you'd have to figure out why it's the, but the, the premise sounds interesting. So uh, I like that. I like that. All right. Because, because also, let me ask you this, like, and this is un, unrelated to the topic of the book, but of the puzzle masters that you have met, you know, in the table of contents, you talk about Sudoku, you talk about chess, you talk about riddles and Japanese puzzle boxes, math puzzles. Was there a common characteristics of people who are masters of solving puzzles? I think so. Uh, I mean, it's uh, what I argue is that puzzles are an amazing way to to train you how to think. And, uh, and there are you know, five or six characteristics that make people great thinkers. And you talked about one, uh, well, you talked about many, but, uh, but one in particular in, in your most recent book was about the experimental mindset, that you've got mm. to try all these hypotheses. You got to throw everything against the wall and see what sticks. So that is a lot about the, the puzzle mindset. So, you know, you're given uh, a logic puzzle you know, turn it upside down. Try, uh, uh, try every. You know, if you're given like a wooden box puzzle, like spin it, throw it against the wall. Sometimes that can break it, but <laughs> do everything. How much would you say intelligence is about creativity versus knowing lots of facts? I think it's more creativity. You know, you got to know some facts. You know, you got to know like that gravity exists and that if you throw up a ball, it's going to come down. But uh, but to me, the real creative geniuses are the ones who come up with novel ways to solve problems. And you don't need a huge amount of knowledge for that. I mean, I talked about this in my book on the Encyclopedia because I read the Encyclopedia Britannica from A to Z is my first book. Excellent so book, knew, The Know-It-All. God bless you. And I knew every, like, I knew way too much. You know, I would just spout random fat. My wife would charge me $1 for every irrelevant fact I inserted into conversation. But that doesn't necessarily make you smart. Applying those facts in a creative way does. I actually love this quote. I don't know who came up with it. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit, not a vegetable. Wisdom is knowing not to put a tomato in a fruit salad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now I just learned some wisdom that I did not know before. Well, uh, also, I, I'd like to, I, I'd like to attack my own, uh, that, that quote, because why don't, why shouldn't you put tomatoes in a, in a fruit salad? That's another example of rule. Like why, why should we follow that rule? So yeah, like, I, I, in solving, like, um, let's say you're playing a game of chess is, you know, one of the keys to creativity in chess is to look at, look at the move that normally everyone would have said that moves impossible. Mm, right. And so starting with the impossible is often a, a good way to lend itself into, uh, creativity, but related to this, 
Are puzzles a good way to exercise creativity or do you need the creativity first? Like, can you get more creative through the process of solving puzzles? I definitely think, I mean, it's, I think it's helped my mind uh, a ton. Uh, and one of the, you know, one of the things I think that makes a good thinker is um, not falling in love with your hypotheses. So being very flexible, being open, being able to change. Uh, and there are a bunch of new books that uh, talk about this, like The Scout Mindset by Julia Galef. She's a great guest if you haven't had her on. Or Adam Grant's Think Again. Uh, it's, all, it's all about not having motivated reasoning, so being open. And and that you need, like, I know you don't love crossword puzzles, but this is, let me give you an example. Uh, it was a, the clue was for a nine letter word and it was, um, uh, it was the result of a bad trip. Uh, and I got in my mind, it's a, a flashback, like an, like an acid flashback. That's it. And I wouldn't let it go. I wouldn't let it go. And it was screwing me up. And it took me two hours to finally figure out, no, it's faceplant. The result of a bad trip is faceplant. And what, is, what uh, do you mean? I don't understand. Well, if you trip, you fall on your face. It's a faceplant. Ah, ah. Not an LSD trip. So I fell in love with my hypothesis. I wouldn't let it go. I didn't have the flexibility of mind, and that screwed me. And that, I think that's in life too. If you don't have the, if you are like, if you have a business and you say, that my business is, uh, you know, making uh, making lamps but it's not going anywhere and you need to pivot, you have to have that flexibility of mind saying, oh, it's not land, it's sconces. That's what's going to make me millions. Yeah, being able to be super flexible about pivoting in business is critical. Like I remember one time, I won't get into the weeds of the story, but I had, I had an opportunity, I thought, to make millions of dollars, but I couldn't get this idea to work. So I said to myself, okay, just sell this asset that I have that I thought could make millions, but I could sell it for super cheap and make like $100,000. And I did that instead. And the next day I had $100,000 instead of trying to spend the next few years trying to make millions. And I was able to reinvest that money and, and so on. Like you have to do the things that would never have occurred to you normally and are again, completely the opposite of your original plan, but you always have to be willing to do the opposite of your plan. Yeah, I love that. Can I tell you my favorite pivot from history uh, yes. that I learned about in the encyclopedia? It was this guy named Thomas Welch, and he was like in the early 1900s, and he was um, he was really into prohibition. Like he thought alcohol was evil, so he invented this non-alcoholic wine that they could serve at churches for communion. It turned out no one wanted non-alcoholic wine at churches. But his son took over and was like, well, what if we just renamed, rebranded it as grape juice and sold it to kids and uh, as like a little snack treat uh, juice? And like that took off. And that was how Welch's came about. But if they had stuck to the original non-alcoholic wine, there would be no Welch's. This type of story is common in business. Like, for instance, Purell that they hand you now every time you work on a plane to... Yeah. to disinfect your hands. Well, that was originally created as a cleaner for semiconductor chips. And mm. then just more and more people stop, started stopping by the inventor's desk to say, hey, can I have some of that cleaner? I want to just like clean my hands. And so that became the product. Oh, that's good. Or what about Botox? You know, Botox was invented as a treatment for crossed eyes and lazy eyes. And, really? Uh, yeah. 
I and it still that. it still can be used for that, but uh, you know, obviously, that's not the main use. Do you feel like you've become more creative through the process of making this book because you've seen so many puzzles? Absolutely, yeah. I really, I'm. I think they are the opposite of a waste of time. They are. You're wasting your time if you're not doing puzzles. That's what I say. I'm glad to hear you say that because I always get worried like, oh, I've played so much chess lately. I'm worried that it's a waste of time as opposed to like, I don't know, no. writing a novel or something. But uh, uh, all right, now I'm, I'm a little more confident in that. Where, where were some of the places, you, you went all over the world doing research for this uh, book. Where were some of the places that you ended up? Yeah, I went to Spain and uh, participated in the... Uh, World Jigsaw Puzzle Championship, uh, did you win? which was hilarious. We did not win. We represented USA and we embarrassed our country, I'm afraid to say. It was my family and I, my sons and my wife and I. Uh, so we were like trounced by Russia. Russia, those people are unbelievable. Like how many pieces were in the puzzle? It was eight hours and you had four giant jigsaw puzzles of about one to 2,000 pieces each. And, and, and how, how quickly did they... Uh, finish? They finished all four puzzles in three and a half hours, which is amazing. Like I could barely move my hands that quickly, even if I knew exactly where to place the, the pieces. But they are just, you know, they're remarkable. And, and they had strategy. You know, it's, you think jigsaw puzzles, is there really a strategy? Yeah. Yeah. There's fun. There's like, you gotta uh, sometimes switch from colors to the shapes uh, like, and they had one person who was a specialist in the colors of the sky, like the monochromatic sky and ocean, like those can often mess you up. So what, what I love is that whatever the topic, you know, chess or mazes or jigsaws, like there are people who are so passionate and so knowledgeable and so, uh, uh, just obsessed that, uh, it's just a joy. It's just a joy to see. And and did how long did it take you to solve? Did you solve any of the puzzles in the eight hours? We did. Thank you very much. <laughs> we solved one of the four puzzles, and it took us six hours. And then we started on the other, and then it ended. So I, so, re I remember as a kid, a basic strategy would be just separate the edges, the corners, and the inside. And then the inside, you could, you know, you could separate by the colors because you know, oh, this is a human, this is a house, this is the sky. Did you do any strategies like that? Like just like the one puzzles 101? Jigsaw oh, yeah. 101? I mean, edges edges usually are good, but it depends on the puzzle. Like the you know, your professional puzzlers will tell you sometimes that's not good. I'm actually working on a puzzle right now where all of the edges are white, but all of the inside has these very striking colors. So in that case, you can separate them, but don't do the border first. Start with the colors. That's another big lesson is always like find the toehold, find what is the easiest way in, what's the weak spot, and then attack it from there. So uh, uh, what other what other places you you went to? You mentioned to me earlier uh, something that sounded really interesting about long-terminism. Long what does that mean? And where did oh, you yeah. find out about it? Well, that is a... That's not uh, related, which is good because my publisher will kill me for talking too much about puzzles. But this was the most fascinating conference I've ever been to, uh, no exaggeration. And it was about a month ago. It was in England and it was with about 200 of the smartest people I've met. And uh, 
I don't know why I was invited, but I was happy to be there. And it was called, the group is called Long View. And it's sort of um, sci-fi meets uh, humanitarian work. So the idea is the future could be very, very good, or it could be very, very bad. Uh, it's you know, it could be a dystopia, like the dystopias are a real possibility. So, so, so let me back up a second and ask you, like you were invited, were you invited to speak or just attend? There were no speakers. It was all just meetings. Uh, so you had experts in pandemics and biosecurity and nuclear war and, uh, and AI. AI is something that they're very concerned about, like robots taking over, which sounds like, you know, funny and like Hollywood, but, uh, and it won't look like the Terminator if it happens, but it is a real threat. Like this is not something that we should take lightly. So, so the idea was how can we try to not just think about ourselves, but think about our 17th great grandkids. And how can we convince other people that this is something that they should do? Because it's a hard sell. Like, you know, if you if you see a commercial uh, for, you know, a kid in Africa who doesn't have enough to eat or has a disease, like you are, that is viscerally, of course you're gonna give money. Of course you're gonna like feel remorse and guilt and uh and you're gonna try to make their lives better but how do you get people to care about someone who's not born yet who you can't see who won't be around for another ten thousand years uh that is a huge challenge well what are some of the issues that people are worried about for like a hundred years from now and by the way was there ever a time when people were not both worried about dystopia and at the same time, another group of people were, were also saying, no, it's going to be heaven on earth in a hundred years. Well, that is a great point. That is a great point. Um, the argument here is that we might actually be in what's called a hinge century, that we might be in the most important hundred years just because of the, the rate of technological change has gotten faster and faster, and it is just startlingly fast, and that AI... If it happens, if you get generalized AI where it's actually, uh, you know, something that we create that can think like a human, that is going to be the biggest technological change in history, like bigger, bigger than cars, bigger than computers. So, yeah, I guess there are a few things that they think about. One is nuclear war which is to me so baffling. Like we were obsessed with it in the 50s and 60s. We had things, you know, uh, PSAs saying with a turtle saying duck and cover, get under your, get under your uh, desk. And then, and in the 80s, we had this terrifying mini series, the, uh, what was it called? Um, the, about the end of the world. And now, they're still, we can still blow up the world a thousand times when no one talks about it. It's I guess so crazy to me. There's less, maybe, maybe they've gotten a lot more serious about tracking, you know, the old Soviet Union nuclear weapons, and there's less nuclear material uh, or like weapons grade radioactive material in order to make a nuclear bomb. But arguably, your point about technology is relevant here, which is that it's probably easier to make a nuclear weapon now than it's ever been before. 
Right. I mean, that I'm not an expert, but according to these people that I was with, yeah, we should not be letting up our guard about this. We should be instituting systems that make it really hard to obtain this material and to launch it. And what's crazy, this one, James, blew me away, is all these stories of the near misses of how the world almost blew up and that are totally under-publicized. Like, do you know the story of Petrov? This was in the 80s. And he was a Soviet uh, army officer who was in charge, basically, of greenlighting a nuclear retaliation on the United States. And one day, on his radar, it showed that there were five missiles from the United States coming. And if he had followed his instructions, if he had done what he was supposed to do, he would have told the head general to launch a retaliatory strike. But he just had this feeling like, well, maybe it's a mistake, maybe it's, and thank God he didn't do it. And it turned out it was a mistake that there was some weird light reflected. But I, there's a movement to start something called Petrov Day, where every, I think it's September 24th, we remember how close we came to ending the world because we just take it for granted that uh, you know, we haven't had a nuclear war and there's never going to be a nuclear war, but this is still around. This is a huge deal. So, 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 uh, what, what's another near miss? Did they, were there other ones? Oh yeah, there's a bunch. There's one with a submarine that, uh, it just so happened that one of the Soviet, it always seems to be this up, but I'm sure there yeah. are American problems. We're better too. at keeping it secret. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, so yeah, there's several near misses and, um, yeah, uh, you know it's terrifying. It's Actually, ter- how do we know that Petrov's story is true? Like, why did they put out a press release? Petrov did save the world by not launching a nuclear attack. <laughs> well, we didn't know about it for years. It was just, um, yeah, it was it was very recently, a little before he died, that that uh, it it was released. I forget who who uncovered it, but someone like interviewed him and he told the story. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go 
speak at the Norway Business Summit. And I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides, like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I, at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. So how many nuclear weapons from the old Soviet Union are not accounted for at the moment? Like, are they missing nuclear weapons? Great question. I, I wish I were more of that. You know, that's why I I went to the uh, conference as someone who could get the word out about how we should be thinking about the future. And also, I just want to stress, it wasn't all doom and gloom. Like, the idea is the future could be the most amazing. It could be like heaven on earth. It could be 
you know, no one has to work. You just do what, uh, you know, you follow the creative bliss. You do puzzles all day. You play chess. You know, it could be, it, we can't even imagine how good life could be. Um, it's almost like saying to, uh, you know, an ape, uh, imagine if like you had all the bananas you could eat. Uh, yeah, but you couldn't explain to an ape, like, uh, imagine that there are, our movies and our TV, you know, the ape just couldn't comprehend it. We cannot, we cannot comprehend how good the future could be. So part of it is, is getting that point across. And part of it is avoiding let, that we blow each other up. Now, but it does seem that technology evolves roughly at the same pace as the problems. So for instance, a classic example, which I've mentioned on this podcast before, it's actually mentioned in the book, I think, Super Freakonomics, when horse manure around the, around the year 1900, horse manure was so big in New York because everybody traveled with horses that they had to shovel out like, I don't know, 20 inches of manure that covered all the streets in the entire city every single day and dump it over to New Jersey or the ocean or whatever. And of course, the development of cars was a technology that like everybody, the environmental disaster of 1900 was that horse manure was going to bury the world. And the, suddenly though, cars were invented and that solved the problem. And so in general, it seems like technology has kept pace with problems in, you know, start, you know, like overpopulation. Oh, we created GMOs to feed the extra two or 3 billion people that exist. Uh, even climate change, like solar power has been improving exponentially. Nuclear fusion, if we ever switched to that, would, would provide clean energy for thousands of years uh, easily. So coming out of this conference, what do you view as a real problem? And also talk about what the AI problem is. Sure. And I love your point. I love your point. I think that is generally true. But there, there is absolutely no guarantee that that will continue, that we'll sure. have our solutions. And, and I, I would say that I think the environmental, I, uh, I'm not sure that we have the technology yet uh, or, or the political uh, will to stop that from being a real catastrophe. I hope we do. But anyway, yeah, the AI, the idea is that it wouldn't be the Terminator, it wouldn't be robots, it wouldn't be like a Will Smith movie. But the, the fear is that we create these AIs that are so smart that and that their goals are not aligned with hu human goals and that that could be a disaster. And let me give you one of the most famous fables uh, in AI when people think about how AI could go wrong. Suppose you programmed an AI to and and you gave it the goal of making paper clips uh, and said make as many paper clips as you can it be, it's a self-learning so it, it becomes smarter and smarter as it starts this goal to make paper clips well it's not going to just stop at making a paper clip factory uh, if it has unlimited resource if it has this intelligence it can figure out a way to uh, hack into the grid hack into the internet it's going to start um, shipping all metals uh, in the world to itself to turn those. It's going to harvest humans to turn them into paper clips. It's going to send rocket ships off to other planets so that you can get materials to turn paper clips. So the idea, the worry is that we will not be able to stop. Once we give it a goal, 
that that goal has unintended consequences that we can't even imagine. Yeah, so that's interesting. So obviously you could program something in that, you know, you could put boundaries or limits on it. And then there's, uh, uh, do you remember Isaac Asimov's iRobot series? So mm -hmm. uh, didn't he have like rules for robots that they, they could never break certain rules? So there were three laws of robotics. A robot may not injure a human being or through an inaction allow a human being to come to harm. A robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. And a robot must protect its own existence as long as it doesn't go into uh, conflict with the first or second laws. So in your situation, the, the AI would break all three of those rules, which seem like basic rules you would program into any super powerful AI. Right. And I do think, I mean, that's the goal of these people who are in the long-termist movement. That's the name of it. Long-termism is to figure out how to program these things in really safely. But it's not so easy. I mean, imagine if like you're, you know, you tell a five-year-old to stop adults from, uh, you know, stealing his toys. So he sets up, you know, some blocks, uh, and says, okay, no one can get over the blocks. Uh, so we're kind of like, if we get a computer, if we have a, uh, this computer who gets smarter and smarter, then they're going to be like the adults. They're going to figure out a way, whether it's bribing the child, whether it's, you know, getting the, you know, just stepping over the blocks or getting a bulldozer to mow, mow down the block, whatever it is, they might be able to find a way around it. So, like, I, I mean, Asimov is right. We got to figure out a way to program this in. Because AI could be amazing. It could make the world so, like I said, it could. You would never have to have a crap job again. Like, you would never, there would be no such thing as a, you know, a, a maid or a housekeeper that AI would do it. They would take care of it. Yeah. I mean, what are, what are the other... Um bad possibilities from AI. And I agree there are, are many. I've, I've talked about this with other guests before, but I'm curious what came up in this conference. Well, one example that really resonated with me is because it's not sci-fi, it exists, it happened, which is YouTube. So YouTube has the algorithm that they want to recommend videos that you will click on. And so that's the only, that was the, the goal of this algorithm like present you with other videos that you're going to click on and like. Uh, unfortunately, in reality, what happened is if you watched a video about, um, uh, I don't know, that, uh, uh, that maybe NASA didn't land on the moon, uh, then it's going to recommend, hey, you think that's something, you should look at this. The earth is really flat and <laughs> that, you know, the government has been keeping this from you. And and that and that has spread misinformation and disinformation everywhere. You know, we have a thriving flat earth community that we didn't have 20 years ago because of this uh, insanity. That, that's really interesting because obviously, you know, presenting you with videos that are going to be harmful to you goes against Asimov's first law of robotics. But how would you have programmed that in? There's no real way because uh, the only way, okay, there's a, there's a sort of human way of programming it and there's an AI way of programming it. So AI, the AI way is called deep learning where the AI figures things out on itself on its own, but the human could say, could decide what's harmful or not. But now we have that problem with 
censorship on all those social media platforms when the humans are deciding what to what to put into the AI that's considered harmful. But if the AI decides it, how would you do it? You'd have to see, okay, what videos make someone blood pressure consistently rise up? Uh, mm. uh, let's avoid those videos. So like anything that makes them um, fuel this addiction to conspiracy theories is going to make your blood pressure go up, your anxiety go up, your cortisol go up, and so on. So maybe there's some way it could learn based on body states before and after watching a video, it can learn what's bad for you, what, what will increase your life and what will decrease your life. So too much cortisol will probably decrease your life. If it's, you need cortisol because you need to be able to react to danger. But if it's too much, if like, if, if your body feels like it's constantly in danger, that's not, that'll lead to heart attacks and strokes and, and so on. So I wonder if there's an AI way to learn what videos are good or bad for you. Well, yeah, it is fair. I mean, that's why these people are there to, to wrestle with these deep questions. And I don't have, I, I'm not an expert. I'm just, you know, I was brought in just to give my thoughts on communication. Uh, there's some amazing people that you should have on the podcast, like Will McCaskill and Toby Ord are both philosophers at Oxford who think about this stuff all the time. Uh, but yeah, like even that, what you presented is very hard. How do we define what's good and bad? Because you can imagine doing an AI that's a, you know, your job is to recommend videos that lower cortisol level, um, but then it becomes a little, you know, it through deep learning, it becomes smarter and smarter. And eventually it's got you on an operating table, taking out your amygdala uh, to get rid of all, all your cortisol. Like, so it's, you know, it's a, it's a deep problem. Uh, luckily there are people thinking about it, but we need tons more of creative, uh, courageous people looking into these massive problems. And, and I'd recommend people uh, watch or rewatch my the podcast I did with Kai-Fu Lee, who wrote a book called 2041 that kind of explores all of these issues in a fictional setting of what could occur 20 years from now because of AI, because of genomics, and, and uh, because of all sorts of things that he, he predicts in that book. It's really fascinating. And it sounds like he would have been an excellent addition to this, this conference. What else... Uh, what else did you guys talk about? Well, there are, um, uh, you know, pandemics. Uh, how do we prevent another one that's, uh, and, and how do we prevent human-made pandemics? You know, it's not clear what, what, what really happened with this pandemic, but in the future, it'll just get easier and easier to create horrible pandemics. I met one great guy who is working on... Um, his idea is, you know, we spend billions of dollars fireproofing our buildings. Uh, shouldn't we spend some money pandemic proofing our buildings? Like if our buildings and houses had better air filtration, this pandemic would have been so much better. Like this pandemic does not spread outside. If we can get the same level of air uh, being recycled inside as outside, this we would not have had. We would have, you know, it would have been a, a minor uh, uh, a problem, not this massive world-stopping problem. Is that true that pandemics don't spread outside? What if you're at like an outdoor wedding that, I mean, weren't they worried initially that outdoor weddings were super spreader events? Uh, yeah, you shouldn't take my, uh, you know, definitely look at the statistics from the CDC and I mean, my I understanding. My understanding is that it is much, much harder. It, yeah. it still can spread outside, but this 
And it depends on the virus. But this particular variant that we're dealing with now is much, much harder to spread outside than it is inside. Yeah. So, okay. I'm not, I'm not so much worried. Like, obviously I'm worried about pandemics because they kill a lot of people. COVID there's, there's a, I don't know how many deaths, but it's a huge number, but it, a pandemic probably can't destroy the world. It can't kill everybody because once it starts killing people, that the, the virus ends with the person who's dead. So if, <laughs> if it kills very quickly, like, like Ebola kills people very quickly, Ebola doesn't really spread worldwide. It's a very localized virus when it comes out because everybody who can transmit it dies right away. Uh, I think the thing about COVID was that you don't exhibit symptoms for about 10 days so you were able to transmit it. So maybe, I guess maybe the perfect, and, and you know, vi the viruses that spread the most are the ones that have no symptoms at all. Like we all have thousands of viruses in our body right now, but they just didn't exhibit any symptoms. And those probably spread to everybody in the world. So there's some spectrum there, but I wonder maybe the perfect storm of viruses, if it, if it could, you could create a virus where there's no symptoms for 200 days, and then suddenly within one day you die. That is a terrifying thought. And I will say, like you said, it may not cause human extinction, but it could do so much damage that it would uh, be catastrophic and set us back thousands of years and we would be living in sort of a societal collapse like you see in the movies. And that is one of the other big topics was this idea of lock-in. How do we avoid locking into a society that is really bad, like an authoritarian lock-in, uh, where it becomes so hard for, you know, the American Revolution was was good. And, you know, the fact that we beat the... Uh, why? We, why is it good? Yeah. I think, I think this is one of those things we assume is a good move. Well, but we can talk about that <laughs> on, our, on our upcoming uh, podcast, Good or Bad. All right, um, yeah. But, and, and it is a fascinating issue whether, like, maybe we should have taken Canada's route. Uh, but regardless, putting that aside, the fact that we were able to wage a successful revolution against uh, England, that is not a given in the future when you've got uh, an authoritarian government that controls all, you know, that has massive power. So how do we avoid that? How do we keep democracy safe? Well, let, let, let me ask you a question. How do you even know what, what's insidious about authoritarian governments, like whether it's Soviet Russia or Venezuela under Chavez, or, uh, you know, there's, there's hundreds of examples. It's very, or, or Nazi Germany, it's very insidious because at first everyone's excited for the new leadership. The new leadership says, the, uh, everybody should have everything and we're gonna bring us into a new dawn. Everyone's gonna have everything they ever wanted. And uh, of course, bad, bad things happen. You know, under, under Mao Zedong, who was, who, had a very, who was very popular, very popularly brought into, you know, became the leader of China. And of course he killed 40 million people, uh, similar to, to Stalin, uh, similar to, to what Hitler did. And how do you know when authoritarianism is creeping up. So for instance, in the US last year, every single business in the country was shut down for months, causing maybe a million small businesses to go bankrupt and many people to, to commit suicide, have depression. And it, all of this was maybe a good thing because it prevented, it, maybe it saved millions of lives because COVID didn't spread. 
But what was authoritarian and what wasn't even in that scenario? And that's a big question, and I don't have all the answers, of course. But I would say one, one safeguard is making sure that we limit misinformation and disinformation, which is, you know, I thought when the internet came, I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is the solution. Everyone is going to have access to all the correct knowledge. But of course, uh, it went possibly the opposite way where we have access to all the bad knowledge, uh, all the incorrect knowledge, and the incorrect knowledge is more exciting. You know, it's much more fun to think that, you know, a bunch of mafiosa and Cubans united to kill JFK than it was just this one loser with a bad haircut. So, uh, yeah, I but I think that one, that is one safeguard against authoritarianism is uh, is just trying to make sure that we have institutions that are self-correcting and that and that provide real information in context and that admit when they make mistakes because authoritarians never admit that they made any mistakes. But I wonder if like when in US history has a president uh, and I'm just I'm playing the devil's advocate. So but like when, when in US history has a president ever admitted he made a mistake? That's a good question. I, I, I got to look back. I don't have it off the top of my head. My, my sense is that Obama sometimes, and he's, I think with the beige suit, he did admit he made a mistake. But I do think <laughs> there were times when he, he admitted he made a mistake. But, um, but it's a good question. I think also that is, that's why I think science is the best route to knowledge because it is self-correcting. A good scientist will change their mind. They will yes. look at the evidence and not all do. And it's, you know, science can be corrupt and, you know, refuse to admit they're wrong. But, but good science is to me a whole different level of knowledge of uh, epistemology. That, that, that's a great point because if you look again at this past year, there were, because we didn't know that much about COVID in the beginning, science did change its mind several times about what specifically is is not that important. But I noticed, A, people were started mistrusting science when they would change their mind. So kind of people need to be a little bit more knowledgeable about what it means to be a skeptic and how most good science comes out of being skeptical of bad science. So science isn't always 100% correct. Like you say, it's self-correcting. And policy and public opinion have to acknowledge that. You can't make a policy based on one set of scientific facts and then see those facts change as new discoveries develop. You know, for instance, in the beginning of the pandemic, we were told not to wear masks, that it wouldn't be a big deal. Now, we were told that for many reasons, maybe not some scientific, but then it became clear you have to wear a mask to avoid, uh, to, to best avoid transmission. So, okay. And then I was talking to one person who's an expert on the constitution and he's, and you know, in the constitution, it says we're all entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, or, or, or maybe it was even the pursuit of property. I forget, but well, that's uh, the original, that's John Locke's version. Yeah. So, so, but this person pointed out that life comes first and then things like property come after that. So that's the lockdowns could be constitutionally justified because it helped the the scientific argument was that it preserved life, but then you have to really start to ask, well, how much life did it preserve and how much life did it destroy? Like, because, you know, in New York City right now, as we're speaking, you can't have elective surgeries because people are worried about the Omicron variant. It's much more transmissible. 
but I don't know if it causes death or causes even a sickness. No one's, no one's said. So we, we kind of have to weigh things. But now when, if you don't, if you prevent, if you block elective surgeries, well, now you're blocking, uh, uh, you know, what's it called when you open up the body to see if they have cancer? I forget. Uh, biopsies? Yeah, yeah. Now you can't have biopsies because that's considered elective surgery. So some people might die because of this policy, even if nobody's dying from the Omicron variant. You know, we, we, I think somehow even that process has to be self-correcting. Now, maybe they, maybe you should ban elective surgeries now. I'm not saying one way or the other. Maybe the Omicron variant's the worst thing that's ever happened in the world. But uh, we just everybody has to understand how to weigh the pros and cons. And I'm afraid people just don't know what that means. Don't we've never we never been taught statistics in school. We learn trigonometry or geometry or 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 I don't know linear algebra, which is useless for daily life. But basic statistics is incredibly useful, and we're never actually taught that in in school. Most people aren't taught that. Oh, I love. Well, I'm not going to weigh in on uh, on the COVID stuff because I haven't studied enough to know. Um, you know, I am very pro mask and pro indoors anyway. I, I but, as well. Uh, I'm very pro indoors, <laughs> just in life <laughs> in general. And I'm, I'm, I, I, don't, I have no argument. When someone wants me to wear a mask, I'll wear a mask. I have no, you right. see people on airplanes get into fights, like just relax and fly in the air and get there to you your go. location. <laughs> but I do want to agree with you 100% about statistics. That to me is so crucial. We under. You know, we focus on the one uh, cute girl in the well, which is terrible. She fell down a well. That's terrible. But let's also keep in mind the hundreds of thousands of people whose lives are endangered by malaria. And there's actually a quote. My, my, one of my favorite philosophers, Bertrand Russell, said a quote, and he didn't actually say these exact words, but uh, I like it better the way that um, he supposedly said it, which was, he said... Um, the mark of a truly advanced person is that they can look at a column of numbers and weep, which is very hard to do. It's statistics do not resonate emotionally. Like I said, you know, the picture of the, the cute girl down the well, that resonates emotionally. But reading a statistic like, you know, 500,000 people per year die of malaria, that's, that does not resonate emotionally. But but we should try, we should fight that. We should try to make it resonate emotionally. And that and that's why I love what you said about statistics. We've got to teach more statistics in schools. Well, you you make a good point because you look at evolution. I mean, for most of human the existence of humans, we didn't know how to count further than ten. And uh, uh, but we did communicate information generation after generation through storytelling. So our brains are built for stories and not necessarily numbers. But I just wonder why do they decide that the standard curriculum in schools would include trigonometry but not probability, when probability is how we make almost every decision in our lives. Oh, my goodness. We should I create know. like a curriculum. So with math, I would say you need to learn everything you need to do to up until you get good at probability and statistics. So that means no calculus, no trigonometry, no advanced algebra, probably very little geometry actually, unless you want to be like a, a construction, you know, builder or whatever, or an architect. But, uh, but you do, everybody needs to learn probability, which is not taught in any grade school in the country, as far as I know. And- uh, I what, love that idea. What would I'm you teach in, in science? Well, what would you teach in science? Well, I would teach, like you said, the scientific method, just knowing mm. that 
that, that you know, it's not perfect, but it is the best way. Um, and uh, I love, but yeah, the probability is huge. That is, let's teach our kids. Let's, I want to pick it. I want to pick well, it well, well, think about it. Before the scientific method, you need to learn probability. And you need to know, because you need to know what's, what's significant when a control group acts one way, but the test group acts another way. Yeah. Is it meaningful? Well, you only know that through statistics. Or what if you're not using a control group? Like with COVID now, it's too early to have a real control group and test group. So you have to look at a population sample, which is a different type of scientific method. And you have to understand what statistically significant means there. What For would you sure. teach in history? In history? Well, I would teach looking at the the world history through several different lenses. Mm. So you can look at history, uh, you know, through uh, class warfare. You can look at history through race, but you can also look at history through um, medical advances or sickness, or you can look at history through um, uh, technological advances and uh, and lifespan. And so there are many ways to look at history. It should not be a single prism uh, that we say. Yeah, you're right. And I, for the past 20 or 30 years, there's been a kind of popular type of book. Like you, you, ever, the, you ever see the book Salt? Yeah, I love that book, yeah. So, so that's looking at history through the use of, it's working at world history for the past 5,000 years through the use of salt. Or, right. Or, and Stephen Johnson's got a lot of books like this, like like air conditioning. If you look at the history of air conditioning, you could describe the entire history of urbanization and technological advances in the U.S. because you couldn't literally work in the South or have skyscrapers in the South until there was air conditioning. Oh, I love that. Well, and then the other thing is one that you mentioned earlier, like the horseman. I would stress just how terrible the past used to be. It was not... You know the good old days were not good. They were they were uh, dangerous, violent, sexist, smelly. So we've got a lot of problems now. As I've said, you know we're facing some serious problems, but we should gain confidence from looking at history to see that we can make progress, and progress is, it can be a real thing. Uh, we can stop suffering. So uh, that would be another big because sometimes people read history uh, and it's like are just like, oh, humans are so terrible. There's, let's just give up. So what fully impressed you about this long-termism conference? Like what's your, what's your biggest takeaway? How has your life improved by going to this conference? Well, there's a phrase that was used for the, one of the meetings that I, mon I moderated. I wish I'd come up with a phrase, but it was, the phrase is the opposite of cold and calculating. You know how people say, God, oh, so cold and calculating. Warm and calculating. Let's all be warm and calculating. Why should compassion and logic and statistics be at odds? No, we can be compassionate. And the, the fact is that if humans exist, if humans exist as long as the average mammalian species exists, then we are at the very very start. And we have had just a tiny percentage of humans to come. There are billions, trillions of humans in the future. Uh, and it's our responsibility to try to look out for them. You know, it's, uh, I call it the, the golden rule is to um, treat your neighbor as you would 
have your neighbor treat yourself. But the titanium rule, in my opinion, because uh, titanium is kind of futuristic, is treat your future neighbor, treat your descendants like you would have them treat you. And that can mean, you know, 100 years or a 1,000 years, whatever. So that's, it. to me, it was just a, an amazing way of looking at the world. And, and bringing it full circle, obviously, the question, what could go wrong? And, and if it could go wrong, how to solve it? And what could go right over the next 100 years? These are huge puzzles. And you need a puzzle-like mind and that kind of creativity. Like if everyone says, oh, we're going to just continue to improve and AI is going to be great and quantum computing is going to be great and nanotechnology is going to be great. If you just say that and don't look at the opposite and at least consider it, you could be in trouble. Like nanotechnology could run amok and create, you know, every atom-like computer could create another atom-like computer Two, or they could create two atom-like computers, which could create two more and two more. And it goes on until it covers the entire planet with atomic size computers and we all die in seconds. So <laughs> even though nanotechnology exactly. is great for fashion and computing and all these other things, it could cause problems. Excellent. I love the full circle because I totally agree. We got to approach it uh, like the, the most important puzzle ever. And, and do you look long-term in your life or do you think about... What's, like right now, you have a book coming out in April, The Puzzler. Or do you look beyond that in your life? That is an awesome question. I don't really look long-term in my life as much as I, I try to now. When I'm thinking of doing good, you know, I, it's not just doing, you know, there, there are a lot of problems now, but let's also give some thought to the problems yet to come. So... Uh, I will say it has changed the way I think about probability in my life because I do, like you said, I, I try to incorporate probability. You know, we often think something is going to happen or is it, you know, it's, it's very black and white. But when my wife says, you know, what time will you be home? I'll be like, there's a 70% chance I'll be home at around 6.30. And that, you know, she rolls her eyes. She's 99% chance she's annoyed by that. But I think we've all got to start thinking in probabilities because that is going to make the world a lot better. But the, the unfortunate thing about what you just did, although it's, it's probably, it, it, the, when, we, when humans assess probabilities without actual data, we tend to be wrong most of the time. So you ever read Philip Tetlock's work on forecasting? Oh yeah, I love it. He is a hero of the long-termist movement. Yeah, because basically he says almost everybody who ha makes forecasts for a living is wrong almost all the time. <laughs> right. But the but the upside is you can be trained to be a better forecaster. And there are these super forecasters who use these various tricks to, uh, to figure out probabilities that are better than the so-called professionals. Excellent topic for a podcast, actually. <laughs> I'm in. How to be a super forecaster. <laughs> well, AJ... Uh, a, there's some takeaways. One is we're going to get you 200 puzzle books by AJ Jacobs within the next <laughs> year or so. We need to develop a new academic curriculum that focuses on quality of life instead of just the same standard curriculum that we've had for the past 200 years. And I think understanding skepticism vis-a-vis long-termism could help really solve problems in society. Like, again, you know, in I think it was in 1972, someone wrote a book that said, uh, the, the England won't exist anymore because of overpopulation. And, mm. uh, you know, by, by 1980, they said this. And of course, that didn't happen. And P 
people have been making forecasts about the end of the world every decade since the 50s or 60s, whether it's nuclear war or climate change or whatever. And they, almost every forecast has been wrong. Although to your point, which I think is correct, the rate of technological change cannot be ignored now. It, it, there, that's what makes this time different because there was, before 1900, there was not really mm -hmm. technological change. Like for a thousand years, things stayed the same. But now everything is changing. And, be, and the faster things change, the faster there's more technological changes because computers are getting faster and faster and, and they're able to sequence, sequence genomes faster, which means we could start cloning, which means we could, who knows what else? Like everything is, is growing exponentially. So it's all to say we've got to be careful and maybe spend time studying puzzles more. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And buying my book when it comes out in April. So. Yeah, well, we'll have you on in April to talk about puzzles, and maybe you'll give us some puzzles as well. So oh, challenge I love us. it. So, love it. All right. Thanks so much, AJ. Thanks for coming on again. Thanks, James. I loved it. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.